from verse 17. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding, and separated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality, so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God, in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. This is God's word. Well, the Reese family have just finished for, I don't know, the fifth or sixth time working through the Lord of the Rings movies. This time we've done it in glorious high definition. There's not a bead of sweat that we've not witnessed. There's not a blade of grass that's not been clear. Uh, the Urukai, you see even all the bits in their teeth. It is, it is an incredible thing. We've enjoyed it. And uh, the, around the, the dining room table, lots of Tolkien quotes fly around as we eat meals together. As uh, everyone, including Tom, delights in quoting some Tolkien quote. Now, in the third movie, which we finished watching last week, uh, there is this decisive moment where um, Elrond um, basically passes a sword to Aragon and urges him this way. He says, put away the ranger and become what you were born to be. Now, if you've been reading Lord of the Rings and watched the movies, you know how exciting that is. It doesn't sound very exciting to you. Uh, and if, if you want the full background, you can read the book or watch the movies. But, but th- this phrase, put off the ranger, become what you're born to be, I think, in essence, captures the message of what it means to live the Christian life. The essence of the Christian life is this. Put away your old life and become what you are born to be. What is vital for us to understand as Christians is that at that moment of conversion to Christ, 
we become a new creation in Christ. That that moment where we repent and turn away from our sins and we put our faith in the Lord Jesus to forgive our sins and make us right with God, at that moment where we, where we believe in the Lord Jesus, we are born again by God's Holy Spirit. We become a brand new person, a brand new life. Sometimes I've had non-Christians uh, say to me, do you know what, I, I don't think I could ever live the Christian life. And the answer is, well, as a non-Christian, that's right. You could not live the Christian life. That's why when you become a Christian, what's exciting is this. God changes us and makes us a new person. He fills us with his Holy Spirit and empowers us to live out this new life. This new life in Christ. And it is vital that we understand this. This is the essential understanding of the ethic of the Christian life. Put away your old life and become what you are born to be in Christ. So look back with me at uh, chapter 2 and verse 10. Page 1174, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. This has become uh, one of my favorite verses this year. I've been meditating on it all the way from the summer. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are, speaking of those who've come to Christ, we are God's workmanship, created. We're a brand new creation in Christ and created to, to, to live differently, to do good works, which God has actually even prepared for us to do. It's an amazing verse, another amazing understanding that as we walk through life now as a Christian, we are working out this new creation life that God has put inside of us. And I think this has some huge implications. It had some huge implications um, uh, for the uh, Christians in Ephesus in the first century surrounded by their pagan culture and I think it has huge significance for us as we live in our pagan culture in the 21st century here in Edinburgh. And that's what Paul turns to as he gets to this part of the letter to Ephesians chapter 4. And so the first thing he says in verses 17 to 19 is this, put away your old life, put away your old life. Oh, well, I've revealed all my points. There we are. That's fine. You can write them down. Put away your old life. Look at verse 17. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Do you notice how serious this charge is from Paul? He lays it on. He says, I tell you this, and he's the apostle. I, the, Paul, the apostle Paul, tell you this. More than that, I insist on it. I insist on it in the Lord. He's speaking with the very authority of the Lord Jesus. So, uh, you know, anything you read in the Bible is important, right? But here's a double underlining. I insist on this in the Lord. They are brand new people in Jesus. And they can't keep living as if they were not Christians. That's the essence of what's being said here. And Paul paints the darkest, sort of most unflattering picture of the non-Christian world. And if you're not a Christian today, then you, you might well take exception to, the, to, to such a harsh description. And thankfully, it's not 
all that the Bible has to say uh, about us as human beings. That, uh, in fact, we exhibit much common grace that God gives us. So this is not true. Uh, uh, this is not all that there is to say about us as human beings. And yet we'd have to honestly say, as we examine the human condition, as we examine what we as human beings are capable of in our, in our worst extremes, this is a description that fits. Plenty of TV programs will illustrate that for us. Plenty of uh, articles in the newspaper today will illustrate this very fact. Look at verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Our problem is that we are alienated from God. Do you see that in verse 18? Separated from the life of God. This is how the Bible pictures humanity apart from the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're like an electric oil-filled radiator where the plug has been pulled out from the socket. There's still residual warmth in there, but there's no power in it anymore, and it's decaying and getting colder and colder. This is what we are like as human beings when we are separated from God. The plug has been pulled out of the life socket. God who gives life, God who is the source of all life, we are separated from Him. And and this separation has come from us. We are hardened. In our own hearts, it says in verse 18. This has all happened because of the hardening of our hearts. Uh, There is enough information about God in creation, even in our own conscience, and yet the Bible says we suppress that knowledge and we harden our hearts against God. And this sort of willful, sort of hardening and, and, and ignoring of God has a detrimental impact on our moral reasoning. See, the way it it focuses in verse 18, the way that our heads get messed up, darkened in their understanding because of the ignorance that is in them. And verse 17, the futile thinking. Now, my friends, we're not saying that uh, non-Christian people cannot think straight. In fact, there's lots of great, smart people. uh, And they're going to hopefully teach you as you pay for your education if you're from England. Uh, uh, they, They will teach you marvelous things. And, and it's not to say that uh, the, the, the mind is so corrupted that it's not able to be capable of transferring great information. But the point is that in, in our hardening of hearts, our moral reasoning is fundamentally twisted and distorted. And because we have twisted thinking towards God, we have twisted lives. That's what the Bible's diagnosis is. Why is this such a messed up world? Why are we in the state that we're in? The Bible says it's because we have hardened our hearts against God. Our moral reason has become defective and we live morally defective lives. We're alienated from God. And a culture that cuts itself off from God and... If God is the source of life, well, that is a culture that's going to grow darker and embrace a culture of disintegration and a culture of death. 
It is a culture that's going to lose its ability to experience shame and embarrassment, uh, but instead pursues delights in moral confusion and perversion. That's what verse 19 is saying. This progressive desensitization of our conscience, having lost all sensitivity, we give ourselves over to sensuality to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. I caught five minutes of uh, Live at the Apollo a few weeks ago, and one of the comedians, Sean Locke, was there. I could only put up with about five minutes. I had to switch off after that. But Sean Locke, uh, during his kind of uh, shtick, his comedy routine, he came out with this statement. He basically summarized his view of life. He said this, I don't believe God exists, so I want to try every experience I can before I die. I don't believe God exists, so I want to try every experience I can before I die. And the crowd responded with only light, nervous laughter at that point. And, and so guess, if that's our worldview, if God doesn't exist, this is all that life is, yeah, that seems to me to make a lot of sense. Let's, let's try and maximize as much pleasure, get as much experience out of life as I can, because when I die, that's it, it's over. There's logic to that, isn't there? And the only question then is, is, is whether you want to do it in an intense way and die with a beautiful body, or whether you want to be more middle class and really stretch it out and sort of, you know, just sort of have smaller pleasures over a longer time until you drop. Either way, it's, it's all hedonism. Get as much out of it, because bottom line is you're going to drop dead and that's it. And the problem that the Bible would have to say, well, there's a number of problems the Bible would have to say about this. Um, one of them is that actually these desires are deceitful desires. They promise life and liberty and freedom, but they produce enslavement, degradation, disintegration, death, and eventually eternal death. And... And that's a, a, a brutal and biblical understanding of culture apart from Christ. Now, if you're tapping mad at me right now for saying that, I just want you to know that's what the Bible says. That's just, that's just there. I'm just telling you what the Bible has to say. This is the Bible's diagnosis. And, and then Paul moves really from this dire, dark picture to in a sense, a picture of what the Christian life is like. So the first point is put away your old life. And, and the second point is, well, live out your new life in Christ. Look at verse 20. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. You did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. They, uh, these people in Ephesus had come to know Jesus Christ. The Jesus of history, uh, who once stood up and said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And they'd come to know the truth about Jesus. they personally come to know Jesus. How had that happened? Well, they heard about Jesus Christ. Somebody came and shared the good news of Jesus with them. Shared about his life, his, his sinless, perfect life. Shared about his teaching, shared about his miracles, shared about his purpose, that he actually came in order to die on a cross. 
that the very reason that he came was he was self-consciously aware that he was sent by his heavenly Father to come and offer his sinless life upon the cross as a substitute for sinful people. So that God would punish and judge him in the place of sinners. And that Jesus on the third day was raised again in order that we can actually know that we're forgiven by God and that we're given a fresh start, a brand new life that, that, that is, can be lived for God. Someone had come and they had shared this good news with the Christian. In fact, Paul had done it. And maybe as Paul had left, others had shared the good news with others in the church and the church had grown. Someone shared it. In fact, in the original language there in verse 21, it says, surely you, in NIV, it says, surely you heard of him. Actually, in the original language, it says, surely you heard him. And this is quite often the testimony of people as they come and listen to the gospel being preached, as, the, as friends share the gospel with them. Suddenly, uh, even though they may have heard it many times in the past, there, there is one time where it seems as if, actually, it's not the preacher that's speaking, it's as if Jesus is speaking directly to them. And they hear his call, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. I'll give you eternal life. Come to me. I'll wash you of your sins. I will forgive you of your past. I'll make you right with my heavenly Father. Come to me. And there's a moment uh, where, and many people will testify to this in the room, where for them, it was as if Jesus was speaking to them, and they said, yes. They heard Jesus. And, and, and they came to know Jesus not through just that initial hearing of Jesus, but they, were, they continued to hear about it. They were taught in him, verse 21, were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. And these Christians were taught from the earliest days of their Christian lives that this one, this Jesus who, who dealt with their sins was the one who was the Lord over their lives and they, they'd received a brand new life and they had a new Lord that was ruling over their life. It was no longer just about how they wanted to live their life. It was what Jesus had to say about the way they lived their lives. Verse 22, you were taught this. What were they taught? Have a look at verse 22. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Brand new life means a brand new lifestyle. That's what they were taught. A conversion, the old life was put away. A brand new life has been given to them. A brand new them. It's like the old life was like a rotten garment. A rotten, rank, corrupted clothes. And when they became a Christian, Jesus said, take those clothes off, give them to me. And they, they got into the shower, they got a thorough wash, and, and, and they get given brand new clothes. I don't know why I think about a white tuxedo, I don't know why. Uh, I've never owned one, but I kind of think of a bright, shiny white tuxedo, brand new white clothes. That's what happens. And that's what we need to remember as Christians. We've become a new creation. We're created in Christ Jesus to do good works. 
that we would walk in those. God's given us his spirit and there's a new nature that desires to live for God, to live in righteousness, verse 23, true righteousness and holiness. And that's what Frank, over the many conversations that we talked about, we eventually got to this point uh, that Frank needed to be reminded of this, that he'd been living with identity amnesia. He'd been living with a false identity. He was not living according to the true spiritual nature that he'd been given in Jesus Christ. And what we all need as Christians day by day is for our minds to be renewed. We need a new attitude in our heads to catch up with this amazing life change that has happened. Verse 23, to be made new in the attitude of your minds. Remember, it's defective thinking about God that leads to kind of a destructive, defective life. And what we need if we're going to live lives of righteousness and holiness, we need to be renewed in our minds. We need a new attitude up here that catches up with this new life. I don't know whether you've had the experience of moving house in the same city. It is very disorientating. I've done this now in a couple of cities in my life, and the same thing has happened in both. Initially, when we moved to Edinburgh, we, we lived in Cramond, in the north of the city. And then we kind of moved into Greenbank on the south of the city. And in those early weeks, um, as I left the office, I had this experience where I jumped in my car and just drove off. And before I knew it, I was half the way to Cramond. My subconscious mind was still living in Cramond. And yet, actually, I'd moved to an entirely different destination. And before I knew it, my habits had taken me the wrong way. And I had to turn around and, and, and think, no, actually, Paul, you now live in Greenbank. Have you ever had that? We, we are such creatures of habit, aren't we? We just get set into certain patterns of, of living. And we need to be renewed in our minds, the Bible has to say, to, to, to catch up with this reality that we're no longer living that old pagan life uh, that was corrupting and deceitful. We've got a new life in Christ. And we need our minds to be renewed to catch up with it. That's what Paul is saying here. So putting off and putting on with this new attitude is intensely practical. It's intensely practical. And Paul gives four kind of practical illustrations of that so that we really get the point. And they're there in verses 25 to 29. Um, my opening illustration of uh, Frank might seem too extreme and shocking to you, but you know what? That's just one example. The truth is that every one of us needs our minds to be renewed in the very practical areas of our life as we see here in verse 25 to 29. We need to commit ourselves to truthful speech. Look at verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood. What's the old life? The old life is telling lies. If in doubt, if you're going to get in trouble, if there's a way around this, tell a porky pie, right? It's just one of these instinctive things. I see, I've seen it in all my children, in a tight spot, if in doubt, lie 
I didn't teach them to do that. They just, they worked it out. Why is that? Because it's part of our corrupt, sinful natures that this is what we do. And Paul reminds them, well, therefore, because of this new reality, this new life in Christ, that you need to, to, to put off that old way of life where you told lies to get by. And instead, put on what? Verse 25, speak truthfully to his neighbor. Speak truthfully to his neighbor. This could get very awkward when you have that moment where your wife says to you, do I look big in this? But that's a tension you just have to work out as a husband. Um, you can share afterwards how you deal with that. But, but either way, we're not to tell lies. We are to speak the truth to each other. Do you see, it is not enough to put off an old pattern. Actually, we need to put on the positive pattern. We need to be committed to being people who tell the truth. That we don't have to sort of make endless promises and, and uh, oaths. Because when we say it, it's true. People can count on it. If we said it, well, Paul said it, it's true. I don't, I don't have to doubt that. He wouldn't lie. And, and, and then notice with me that there's this third part. What's this new attitude that they need? Well, it's there in verse uh, 25. Here's the new attitude. For we are all members of one body. This is the big shift we need to remember. The reason that we do this is actually because in Christ, uh, amongst God's people, we're all part of one body. We're all joined together. And what destroys unity is what? Lies. If I don't know I can't trust you, there's no basis for a relationship, is there? Don't worry, Paul, I'll be there. No problem, I'll be there. (sighs) He's a liar. It's not going to be there. That, that just doesn't work, does it? Lies destroy unity. Speaking the truth actually builds unity. You know when people ask me, Paul, would you do this for me? I, I no longer say yes. I say I'll try to. Because I'm weak. Do you know what? I may forget. So I say, well, I'll try my best to do that. I'm, I can't promise because I'm, you know, my brain is limited. And we, Speaking the truth will will help build unity. Paul would say to us, become what you were born to be, people who speak the truth and not lies. Second example, uh, righteous anger. Look at verse 26. In your anger, do not sin. It's not a command to get angry, but the truth is we're all angry people. Do you know that? We're all angry people. You just haven't realized it yet. My wife didn't think she was angry until we had young children. She'll tell you this. I'm not saying anything behind her back. But she discovered she had an anger problem when the little children came around. We all have an anger problem. So the question is, what are we going to do with our anger? And Paul says this, in your anger, do not sin. We need to put off losing our temper out of selfishness and sin. To be honest, most of the time my anger is just a reflection of our selfishness, isn't it? Someone has ticked us off. They've got in my way. They've taken up my time. I don't believe that. 
You know, I stand in a queue. People have the cheek of buying things at the grocery counter in front of me. Six people, and they're taking forever. Oh no, they've got to go back and check the price of that thing. I can't believe it. I'm an important person. They're stopping me. Is that righteous anger? I don't think so. I don't think. And Paul would say, actually, got to get a new attitude, got to get a new mind. You're a new person now. Put off that selfish, sinful anger. Put it off. It's a choice. Do you see this? There are choices to be made every day. Now, I sense it coming. I sense it rising. I've got a choice. What am I going to do? I've got to make a choice to put it off. And what I put on in its place, well, I put on making sure that my anger is righteous. I ask myself, Paul, why are you getting so angry? Is this righteous anger over injustice in the world? Or is this about you being selfish? Right. Make sure your anger is righteous. And it says, make sure your anger is limited, that it doesn't fester. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Uh, the, the, the point here is, is not that in the summertime in Norway you can be angrier for longer. Um, it is, but it's saying there's a time limit. Don't let another day go by and let that anger fester. Do you know what kills relationships? Festering resentment and anger. It'll crush the life out of love, won't it? Very important in marriages not to let a day go by where you go to sleep with that resentment and anger. How horrible to wake up in the morning. I've done it. Still feeling anger and resentment. Oh, it's horrible, isn't it? Don't let the sun go down. And your anger, it says. And what's the new attitude? Well, realizing, verse 27, that actually the devil is at work in the world. The devil is wanting to disrupt the unity of our church, the unity of our marriages, and the devil is looking for a foothold. Do not give, verse 27, the devil a foothold. This is the new attitude I need to realize. We're not in peacetime, it's wartime. The enemy is looking for an advantage. He's looking for a way in. And if you're going to be resentfully nursing your anger against your spouse, against someone in the church, there is somebody who's rubbing their hands in glee. And it's the devil going, fantastic. We're going to have some fun here. That's what the devil's saying. So Paul says, put away the old life. Live out this new life. Become what you were born to be. Yes, if you're going to be angry, do it righteously. But if not, stop it. Bring it down. Practically, about being productive. Look at verse 28. Being productive for our work. Verse 28. He who has been stealing must steal no longer. Paul has an expectation that actually in, in the church he's writing to, there'll be thieves. And uh, statistically, that's probably true today. He who has been stealing must steal no longer. Put off that old life where you would steal time, steal money, steal reputation. Put it off. And put on instead what? Work. Doing something useful with his own hands. The thief must stop being ingenious about nicking with his 
hands and actually use those hands to work and do something productive. And, and you know what? There's a radical new attitude that we are to have as Christians. Um, most people work so they can pay their own bills and feed themselves and feed their family. But the Christian works for a different reason. Do you notice that in verse 29? Do you see what it is? Or 28, sorry. He must do something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. Why are you studying at university? Well, you're studying at university so you can get a great paying job so you can give more money away. That's the great reason to go to college. You can earn a higher salary, and once you've paid off all those student debts, especially for England, you can then give that money away to those who are in need. That's the new attitude. The new attitude of the Christian is, I don't work just for myself. I work to give and serve other people. There's a radical new attitude that Paul is calling us to have. And lastly, with our speech in verse 29, what are we to put off? Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. The idea of unwholesome is like rotten, like rotten fish. Um, you know how your mouth is in the morning after you've woken up after a curry the night before? <sighs> Don't let your speech throughout the day be like that. That rotten mouth. That corrupting mouth. Have you noticed in a conversation that when the conversation starts going uh, a little bit south, a little bit more risque, a little bit more, that it, it, I don't know, it's like a knock-on thing, isn't it? It's like a race to the bottom. I've got a worse situation, I've got an even worse, crasser joke, and it's like, a, I don't know what it is about it, but we compete to kind of say the rankest thing. I don't know why that is. And... Paul is saying to us, become what you were born to be, which is putting off speech like that, and instead put on what? Put on only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. That the, the, the change of mind goes, actually, I want to say things that encourage and strengthen other people, that are going to build them up, that are going to help them, rather than say things that are actually going to take them in a direction that's entirely rotten and unhelpful. And here's the new attitude. What is it? That I will speak now, the end of verse 29, that it may benefit those who listen. The word benefit in the original language is the word grace. The new way of thinking as a Christian is that we have the capacity with our words to impart grace. Grace that will wholesomely build up, grace that will strengthen, grace that will encourage, grace that will help people come to know the living God, who is the God of grace, that we may impart grace to other people. What a privilege that we can have with our words. Our words can tear people up, destroy them, stamp them, make them feel rubbish on the floor, or we can build them up, strengthen them, point them to Christ. What power are words? And so God's word would have to say to us, become what you were born to be. Can I just say that one of the things I've noticed of having lived in America and now moved to Scotland is that there is a Scottish trait. May I 
dare to mention this. It's probably a Welsh one too. I'm not trying to be sort of particularly sectarian about this. But I, I've noticed that if I ask uh, a Scottish person, have you got any feedback about the way the church is or, uh, or about the sermon or about this or that, the default position for the Scottish mind is criticism. We take that as a, oh, he wants me to criticize. Okay, here are things that are wrong. Bang, 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 bang. When actually, feedback could be an opportunity to encourage. Say, actually, I'm so encouraged by this. I'm so encouraged by that. This is so wonderful. This is, this is, actually, America does this. It does it to the extreme, actually. You know, everything's awesome and wonderful and great. Uh, you know, everything is. And uh, that's why it was so fun to be in America for eight years. I just felt so encouraged, you know. And, and now I'm back into the real world, you know. But there's a new attitude that is needed amongst Christians. That actually when we speak, we're going to speak to impart grace. Impart grace. What does Jesus have to say? Well, he would say this to us. He, he warned of the devil's desire to destroy people when he said this, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life. Jesus says, and have it to the full. What if you're not a Christian here today? Well, I would say to you from the Bible that Jesus would say this to you, you must be born again. We can, you know, you can go to the self-help section, you can learn to do things a wee bit better and be a bit more organized and all the rest of it, but the Bible says we can never by our own human efforts achieve what God desires. We need to be born again. We need a new nature. Being a Christian is not suddenly about being nicer. There's a lot of Christians here, they're not particularly nice. I'd be myself, I would say. That Jesus came to make us new. New people. And if you're not a Christian here today, I would say this, Jesus would say this to you, you must be born again. I've come to give you life. Jesus would say, you know, if you turn away from your sin and your shame, I can forgive you and I can cleanse you and I can wash you and I can make you right with God. All you have to do is come to Christ this day. Acknowledge your sin. Ask him to change you. Ask him to give you this new life. And what would I say to Christian friends today? I'd say this. Become what you were born to be. Live out this new life. And the options might be, well, no, I'm going to continue with identity amnesia. And I want to say to you, honestly, as I've, I've looked at the trajectory of people's lives and I've had the privilege to get close and see consequences to the choices that people have made, that way for the Christian to keep pursuing. I mean, it says if you've been given that kind of white tuxedo, and then you pick up that dirty, rank, smelly scarf and put it around you. It's bizarre, isn't it? If you've been made clean, and you give fresh garments, if you've put on those dirty, scabby mittens, that's the final thing you dress before you go out. It, that stink. Let me tell you, that is not the way to joy and peace in Christ. If we continue 
living contrary to our new natures. That is a way of futility, darkness, insensitivity, to be unsatisfied, to be despairing even. If we say yes, oh Father, by your Spirit, help me to become what I was born to be then this is the testimony of those who've sought that God's grace, a a growth in truthfulness of speech, a growth in controlling anger, a growth in, in being productive in their lives, a growth in generosity, a growth in being encouraging and gracious in speech, a growth really of people who reflect the glory of God in his righteousness and holiness. And by God's grace, Frank was arrested by the police. And it woke him up. And as we started talking together and praying together and reading the scriptures together, his life began to be radically changed. And he entered into a new life of confidence and joy and peace and freedom from the very lust that had enslaved him for decades of his life. And it changed everything about him. Everything. So over to you. What are you going to do this week? Uh, freshers, students. Do you know what? If you're a Christian here today, it's not about living in a way that pleases your parents. That has no power. The question is, are you going to live in a way that reflects this new life in Christ? That's the choice today, isn't it? That's the choice this week. Are you going to live out of this new life in Christ or not? What would it mean for you to live this week like God in his righteousness and holiness? What would that look like for you this week? And for the rest of us who are not students, who are Christians here today, what would that look like for us this week? In our speech, in our anger, in our work. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we uh, freely confess this day that apart from Christ, uh, we would be without hope. And so, Father, we want to thank you so much that you sent your Son to die to save sinners. Lord, each of us are sinners apart from your grace. Lord, each of us struggle with temptation and sin day by day. Father, we ask that you would help us by your spirit to live out this new life in Christ in righteousness and holiness. That we would reflect your glory to this world. Father, there is so much brokenness and shame. Lord, help us to reach out in love and care and point people to your amazing grace. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen.